This is David Moyes. This is Yapstam. This is Ryan Fraser. This is Troy Daly. This is Adam Lalana. This is Jurgen Klopp, and you're listening to the big interview with Graham Hunter. Hello, good morning, how's about you and all that kind of stuff. It's Graham back again. We have the big interview for you. If you're a new listener, a new socio, thank you very much indeed. If you're an existing socio and you're a veteran of these interviews, thank you very, very much indeed. I've known Martin O'Neill for a long time. Nonetheless, we waited until the opportunity came when Martin, who's a a thoughtful, interesting, articulate, charming man, and therefore didn't require a ghostwriter for his recent autobiography on days like these. We chose that uh, moment to to support his project, to chat to him about his life in football, and to bring this to you. The title of the book on days like these was something that I latched onto immediately because I love the Italian job. I guessed it was in tribute to the the title song sung by Matt Monroe. Indeed it was, and we were off to a good start. Without following his life completely chronologically, I'm always interested in the formation of a man or woman who becomes prominent and successful in sport. And it turns out that Martin truly had an idyllic village childhood in Northern Ireland pre the Troubles, playing with kids from both sides of the divide without any hesitation whatsoever. And we have a mutual love of cricket. And Martin's textbook memory for cricket in the 50s and 60s shines through, and I enjoyed that. He talks, because I prompt him to, about the impact of the Troubles, not just in his own country, but as a Northern Ireland Catholic living in England during the time of the Troubles, um, exacerbating, becoming tragic, becoming hugely impactful on life in Northern Ireland, Ireland and the United Kingdom. I asked him because I was genuinely interested about what life in the Midlands was like for a young man with that accent and, and whether he faced prejudice in chatting about this, in asking about this, Martin revealed an extraordinary coincidence that he was in one of the pubs that were bombed in Birmingham precisely 48 hours before that terrorist act took place. Even in the discussion of dark, difficult times, there's a little bit of humour because Martin's family, having moved from Kilray near Derry up to Belfast, decided that they wanted to be in the Midlands for a variety of reasons. Something that you might have thought was a source of great rejoicing for a young man homesick and finding his feet in England, Um, but indeed not. (laughs) Martin is, is darkly humorous about how that clipped his wings. As a young man coming through at Nottingham Forest, uh, meeting Brian Clough for the first time. And there's great discussion about how, as a manager, winning changes everything, even 
your your family Saturday nights. Suffice to say that Martin O'Neill is extremely um, articulate, intelligent. He's usually very witty and funny when he talks about events that scar his country and, and the rest of the United Kingdom. I find him very interesting. Overall, in part one, you've got a portrait of Martin O'Neill, which I think you won't have heard so often, and a chat which strongly reflects his very interesting and highly recommended autobiography on days like these. This is one of the thrills of the jobs, uh, people, not just because we're in London on a brilliantly bright blue sky, crisp, cold winter's day in the street where I used to work for so many years, but across from me has got somebody who I used to love watching play football and somebody who I then followed leading my team, Aberdeen, into misery as manager of Celtic because... We have Martin O'Neill with us mm. this morning. Um, Buenos dias, Martin. Good morning Hello, to you. Yeah. Thanks, for, thanks for coming out. Oh, it's a pleasure. Thank you. Um, I'm going to start by saying we are here principally because you fascinate us, but mm. more pertinently because On Days Like These has just been published. And although there may be royalties to pay for this, On Days Like These mm. is actually your autobiography. Mm. It's fabulously written. Mm. You didn't need a ghost. No, thank you. And before we get into what's in the book, why is it titled On Days Like These? Well, you're playing it, absolutely playing it. That is exactly it. Um, I was searching around for a title for the book and I thought, well, it it contains some highs, um, naturally, uh, quite a number of lows. and um, And I was listening, strangely enough, or my wife, actually, I'll give her the credit for it, um, heard this song by Matt Monroe on days like these, which is the opening to um, the film The Italian Job. And it's just absolutely brilliant. F- first of all, Matt Monroe, terrific crooner. I remember Matt Monroe, you might not. The man with the golden voice. Yeah, absolutely brilliant. And um, <laughs> so, uh, and the song is just fantastic. It's, uh, I think it's kind of relevant as well too, because on days like these are exactly that. You don't know whether they're good days or bad days. Was there any gold bullion in your career with a bus tipping over the back of an Italian mountainside, or did it just seem a little bit like that? <laughs> it just seemed a bit like that. No, I, I absolutely not. No, I'm. I was uh, born into um, a Catholic Irish nationalist family, um, middle one in the family, four bro- four brothers, uh, four sisters, and uh, yeah, so grew up in a little village in Kilray in County Derry. Uh, you would think at that time this is uh, you know early fifties uh, to the late fifties, and um, and people ask was well, you know was <clears throat> was there much trouble at the time because obviously uh, Northern Ireland was um, what shall I say for thirty years was uh, it was just besieged with trouble, um, but in the fifties there were I would say skirmishes around the border towns at the time but never seemed to affect uh, me. And in actual fact, uh, I had as many Protestant friends growing up as I did have Catholics. In the way you tell it in the book, um, <clears throat> life seems... If idyllic's too strong a word, mm. I know you'll contradict me. But there was time for GAA, there was mm. time for football, there was time mm. for cricket. Mm-hmm. You said that you lived in an estate where it was predominantly Protestant mm. and only four Catholic families. 
but it was the typical thing that I think breeds you used to breed great men and women in sport out constantly playing mm-hmm. sport gives you society sport gives you challenges and when you do a range of because there is an interest in cricket I think mm-hmm. stemming from back then mm-hmm. very much so really I um, by the time by the time that we got uh, our television about, about 1960 I think it was in fact uh, Blackburn Rovers and, um, and Wolves was the first FA Cup final I saw on our own television and um, so Remember Black and White, Fred Truman, the, the, the Ashes series, you think them coming in, Fred Truman, I remember uh, getting that record of 300 wickets or something like this here. And, um, and of course, there was an Australian player uh, called um, O'Neill as well, too, believe it or not. And we used to all, I used to ask my mother, you, are we related to this? Are we related? She hadn't a clue. But no, so he's down in Australia. Obviously, I assume he must have been a must have been Irish immigrant at some stage or another. But even so, Bill Laurie, yes, uh, um, Redpath, and um, and all of those. Was this in the time of, of Laker and uh, Titmus? That, that would have been uh, for Titmus. Yes, Laker. Laker. I think was just before just that. Before. before that, yeah. So uh, naturally, great interest in that. But here was the point. So we used to take this. My, my two brothers. We played in the backyard. We put up the uh, the a um, uh, couple of sticks for the wickets and things like this here. And great. What? We, what, what about the rest of the equipment? I'm genuinely interested. Did, did could you afford a bat? Was it a real cricket bat? What no, did no, you no, use no, as no, a ball? No, 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 no. The ball was a tennis ball. Yeah, yeah. we used to always have a tennis ball, and that was great. And. Uh, I, I remember thinking when I, the very first time I ever saw a, a real a real cricket ball and it was so hard and it was red and it was shiny and it was all these things and I thought, oh, is that, is that, is that what they use? <laughs> They've got it wrong. <laughs> They've got it wrong. It's, it should go 300 metres when you yeah, hit it. Exactly. But, um, <laughs> so what was interesting was that, yeah, it was all right us playing uh, amongst each other, but we needed, we, needed, we needed to be a team and therefore we played against um, this family called McAllister's. Now, I was about, let's say, about um, about nine or ten years old. My younger brother would have been a couple of years younger than that. And it, but we were playing, and John McAllister was, uh, this was a family a couple of doors up, and um, John was a wee bit older than us, but to compensate for that, that age difference and where he would be strong and be able to bowl faster than any of us, he had a couple of sisters that played as well in the game. And he had them outfielding, and if we could hit, if we could hit a certain, a certain uh, ball over a, over the little, um, what would have been a little curve, that would be six. But you could be caught. You could actually be caught out there as well too. So the number of times that his his sisters dropped the catches and gave us six runs, and the number of times he sent them home, <laughs> he sent them back up to the house again. So we essentially just played John on his own. <laughs> So, on a, and every single ball that got anywhere near our legs, he just showed it LBW, <laughs> LBW, which is crazy. Cricket has played a big uh, part in this series because our very first interview seven, eight years ago was Gary Neville and Richie Benno had just died. Mm-hmm. And we were asking Gary, it's surprising to start talking about Richie Benno, but instantly he remembered Richie's phrasing and his rules for what mm-hmm. you do and don't say. And that, that drew us into Gary and self-analysing about... What, he, what adjectives he did or didn't use in go commentary. Then about a year later, we spoke to Phil, who'd been good enough to have come through with Michael Vaughan and Collingwood. And mm. at the fork of the road, sliding doors, you call mm. it, in days like this, mm. 
Sliding doors, he could have been a, an England test. He was youth captain for England, Phil was, and put right? in by, you know, the Lancashire League. Yeah, are yeah, of course. Unbelievable. And his dad mm-hmm. put him in at 11 to fo- mm-hmm. face a West uh-huh. Indian opening uh-huh. bowler in a competitive match, aged right, 11 uh-huh. with a, uh-huh. a yeah. helmet. Uh-huh. And the weirdest one in cricket is, is Jockey Bjorklin. If you remember Jockey, who played for Rangers, who's a Swede. Yes, yes. Uh-huh. Lives in Valencia. Obsessed by cricket. Was he? Obsessed. Was Could yeah. name you yeah. a West Indian all-time 11, yeah. a world all-time 11 uh-huh. from all the eras. That's right. And I like when sports like that come up and feature because the wider your palette mm. about what you've learned, who you've watched... What the sport tells you, because each sport tells you slightly varied things. Mm-hmm. I think it changes our mentality. Well, absolutely. Well, there's a couple of things about that. Number one, uh, West Indies, who had the great side, you know, uh, Wes Hall, Charlie Griffiths, all those players, they were all playing against England, and somehow or another, they had a day off to play Ireland. Ireland in a, wow. a one day game, and, I, and Ireland beat them. Wow. Ireland beat them, and Cyan Mills, way back in the 60s, beat them in a game. But the last. They, tell them, they, they say now that West, all the players, the West Indies players, the day off, they didn't treat, uh, treat Ireland too seriously. You know, they'll beat them in any given time. And um, they were bowled out, I think, for about 36. But apparently they, were, they, were, they had been on the lash the night before. So I don't think they, could, they couldn't have seen a football, never mind a cricket ball at that time. So they got 36. And I think Ireland lost about eight wickets to try and get there. To get the number, you know, I'm sorry, I think they might have lost six or something. Well, they did. But Ireland beat them in, the, in this little game, you know, and it became... That should be as famous as Munster beating the Blacks, Well, for it's example. really, really famous, I must admit, and it's certainly famous in Cyan Mills. But here was the point. <laughs> um, second point about this year, Richie Benno. Now, Richie Benno was... Uh, in those days, Richie Benno was playing for, for yes, Australia at that yes, stage. That's fine. Yep. But then he became this fantastic commentator. And he had a really great manner with him. He didn't, he didn't slag people to, to the high heaven. But you felt as if you know, he could deal with these situations. And yet he could easily go in to the dressing room of either the two teams. Either the team that were the victors, the vanquished. He could have gone in there and they would have welcomed in, him in. Even though he might have been a bit critical about a performance but I remember this one never forget a lad a lad Australian player called Rick McCosker Rick McCosker was playing I know that and Rick McCosker was having a terrible time I think it must have been the Ashes series and Richie Benn was commentating and uh, and he's like he's getting ducks and he's getting ones and twos and stuff like this but they continue to play him and anyway, it got to a stage. He's, let's let's say let's say it was the the third test, or maybe the and uh, McCosker's average is about one and a half or something. <laughs> and um, so anyway, he comes into bat again, and he's bold. He's bold immediately. And then uh, Richie Benn, I'll never forget. We, we never forget this comment. He said, "Hmm." That's rock bottom for Rick McCosker. <laughs> a lovely it's phrase. Really absolutely rock bottom for Rick McCosker. <laughs> but it's alliterative, it's poetic, absolutely. but also sh- tight. Brilliant, yeah, honestly. So my brothers, if I, if, I, if, I, if I phone any of my two brothers now of that age and I turn around and said, rock bottom for Rick McCosker, they'd remember what it was. Yeah. Um, what is it? About Barber's sons and sporting great greatness, you and Vince Lombardi. Oh gosh! Oh, I, I, there's where the comparison ends. No, I said, no, I don't think Lombardi, so. Lombardi, yeah. Um, Super Bowl one and Super Bowl two. Absolutely. Uh, have you been keeping an eye on the Super Bowl at the minute? 
I, I, I love my NFL. Mm-hmm. This season, I haven't been able to watch as much as I would like to, but um, the, who's the quarterback I despise for his political views? I think he's away. Mahomes is through. I'm not. Hurts is playing. Mahomes is. The, so it's. They, they got Chiefs through, and Bengals? They got, yeah, they got, yeah, Chiefs and Bengals are playing. Yeah. They, got, they got through, but Mahomes got injured. Yeah. He got, re, he got injured. Now, that sort of injury, you, you can maybe during the course of the, the, that, the game, you might be able to patch it up and play on, which he did do, for, but he certainly was handicapped greatly. Now, whether he would be fully fit for the following week, it might, might have been a really difficult... 29th, that's play, coming yeah. up, yeah. Yeah, so that's... And um, it's 49ers. The 49ers who beat... Um, they won last night. I can't remember they who they're beat facing, Dallas. though. They beat Dallas. But that's a game for the yeah, ages, isn't but it? They, they will play the Eagles. They will play the Eagles. The Eagles, who are brilliantly strong going forward. It's offence v defence, yeah, isn't it, in that, in that match-up? Absolutely. No, I love my NFL. Yeah. I've been to one Super Bowl... Um, which I, I really don't know how I managed to wangle it, mm. but I did. Um, would it correspond with your with your time at Leicester? It was in Miami, and it was the 49ers against the, the Chargers. It was an absolute thrashing. Steve mm. Young was the quarterback man of the mm. match. Mm-hmm. He and Jerry Rice ran the whole thing. Mm-hmm. Um, San Diego Chargers. Am I right to eat this? Is you, you please, no, no, work away. Yeah. I'll join you. Yeah. Would have been 95 Super mm-hmm. Bowl, I think. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't a competition, but it was... One of the things was, for me, I hate to be parochial, seeing as we're talking about your life, your book, but in, you know, the Super Bowl at that stage, if it wasn't... It, and it wasn't bigger than, say, a World Cup final or a, the Champions League final now, mm-hmm. it's still gigantic. Mm-hmm. It would rank up there in the mm-hmm. top four or five events. And after the game finished, um, because of the belligerence and the way that the sports union of journalists negotiated, particularly sponsors and mm-hmm. franchises over there, we were in the dressing room, the media. We mm-hmm. were in the dressing room mm-hmm. 30 minutes after the final. Mm-hmm. Not in a mix zone, mm-hmm. not in a press conference, in the locker room, okay. interviewing them. Mm-hmm. Now, because I'm mm-hmm. honest and responsible, I like that. Mm-hmm. But I, I think about it, and I am quite slack-jawed in amazement mm-hmm. because the room for absolute mm-hmm. disaster yeah. where that introduced... Uh-huh. Let's stick with football, soccer. Mm-hmm. Uh, because there are a lot of other sports where the communication, the trust, that I know you have with certain people in, for example, Pat Murphy, for example, whoever it might be you would choose. That can exist in the modern era. But mostly, I think our profession is not any longer sufficiently responsible to handle that privilege. Yet, with that privilege of being in there and talking to coaches and mm. players and getting to know them the chances of a better relationship and better reporting mm. do augment mm-hmm. but that was my experience of the Super Bowl crazy well funnily enough I, I, you can look at it from um, either side really you can look at it from um, a journalistic viewpoint this is great to be able to be in a, a dressing room 13 minutes after the game is over it's extraordinary absolutely extraordinary it's what you would live for it's terrific I can I know I'm going to be speaking to one or two uh, was it the was it the victors or was it the team that we could beat? I went into the I went in the Forty Niners. All right, okay, fine. All right, okay. So it's, you know it's uh, uh, it's great and it's fantastic. But you imagine been might been allowed into the dressing room. <clears throat> let's say let's say Alex Ferguson has just lost a, uh, an FA Cup final. Well, number one, you wouldn't be in that dressing room anyway for a start. But secondly, to allow someone in thirteen minutes after it would be it'd be kind of crazy. I'd never. I never did it myself. I didn't, um, and yet 
you know, the hole in the wall documentaries are the things that you love. Absolutely. Yeah, you like I, to have it. I really like you've always been able to see, well, however you decide to mm. act, you've always been able to see both sides, and you're that's, right. That's, yeah, absolutely. Inside yeah, views, yeah. when well done, are addictive. Of course, of course. They're, they're great. <laughs> Remember Peter Reed one, when Peter Reed did it, see Peter's language is incredible. Great, great. Good old player. Let's not say he's the only one in football who well, uses no, that no, language. No, 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 we're, no. We're I all, think I'm up there with them. We're essentially all the same. No, but I'm the only man who can outswear me is Ozzy Ardiles. Yes, but he can. Yeah, is that right? <laughs> yeah. Okay. So anyway, uh, but no, I, I'm I'm entirely in agreement with it from a journalist's viewpoint. I'd be love to be in there. But Absolutely. under no circumstances would you have, or will you in the future allow it? No, that's that's right. Why did you smile and raise your eyebrows when I said Lombardi? Oh, yeah, well, listen, Lombardi is, um, I mean, uh, he's just um, obviously the, uh, a legendary figure. And, you know, you <clears throat> use that legendary word advisedly because anybody who wins two games nowadays are called a legend. But, um, no, absolutely. He's, did he have ideas that you, you know, about the, the primacy of victory above everything else? Uh, absolutely. Absolutely. This is it. It's 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 what it's about. You you have to win. You genuinely have to win. This this idea that you know that uh, for, well. Okay. Let let me put it this way. We start off then. I, I go and get a job, and the uh, owner. Uh, let's say I'm I'm managing uh, good Aston Villa, and uh, Mr. Lerner is coming up and speaking to me. He's he wants to do a lot of things with the football club. He sees uh, comparisons uh, with um, uh, with Cleveland, you know, you know um, the Browns. Absolutely, he sees the comparisons not just not just the two football clubs uh, as such, but also uh, the t- the cities. Themselves. Yes, the region, you know, the culture, the history. Absolutely yeah. right, and it was great. And he also wanted to do um, make the training ground better, which he did. He wanted him just wanted. To, uh, a better spectacle around around Villa Park, and it was all ter- really really terrific. But he didn't, um, and those things were all in the background. But to do that, the one thing that American owners despise most uh, most of all is relegation. Yeah. You really you can't build a model, you can't build a business if you think that you might be relegated. So. And and I, you know have to get that notion out mm. of your head. But relegation does exist. So on the one hand, what I'm saying to you is, you have this, you have this long-term plan. You want to do all these things, and it's really it's it's so good to hear. But in the meantime, you have to win football matches. Not only one to stay in, to stay in the in the Premier League, but also then. Aston Villa would be the expectations would be higher, you know, all those type of things. It's a so virtual, absolute. virtuous circle. So getting back to the getting back to the point, you've got to win. You've got to win the football games. And here's the here's the point. And I I've I, I don't know whether I mentioned this in the book or not, but uh, my two daughters never really saw me play. You know, I yeah. uh, and um, 
and so uh, their view of me is as a football manager as much as anything else. And when I was at Wickham Wanderers, I, I felt I had I have to win. I have to win here because we're uh, the uh, the chances of me getting another a job, let's say higher up, was, although that wasn't something that 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 was in the forefront of my mind all the time. I loved Wickham, but I had to win because just let's say I didn't win there. This idea that you make all your mistakes in lower leagues and you'll be all right, it's just, it's, it's balderdice, absolute balderdice. You lose the matches at Wickham, do you, think that they, they, do you think that the owner of Sheffield United is going to come up and say, oh yeah, we'll take a chance with him? And, uh, and the CEO says, well, by the way, he hasn't won a game at Wickham. So you have to win. So here was the point. My daughters quickly realised, my, certainly my older daughter, be what, 11 at the time, realised um, for the first time that Saturday evening hmm. is much better hmm. at home if her father has won the game, right? Because then that means that if we've won, I'm, I'm in a really good mood and we can have some lousy Chinese in the corner of High Wickham or something like this here, but it will be, that will be our family, our Saturday night. So we won't be doom and gloom if we win the game. And everything, every single time I left for match day games, she would come out to the car, leave at the last minute, and I have to wind down the window, and she'd say, Dad, don't forget, just win. That's, that's right, absolutely, that's right. So at one stage or another, we were, and you have to win, you have to win because it gives you respite for a start. And then if you go and win a trophy, as Sir Alex Ferguson says, it gives you a bit of power. And that's the point. It gives you power as well too. So all of the, you know, suddenly you've won and you've proved, your, you've proved something, at least in the dressing room, you know, and players will start to follow. When you're winning, players will follow. And those dissenters in the dressing room will have a lesser voice. As well as a profession and as well as a testimony to a man or a woman's skills in that situation you've described, and as well as being good for family life on a Saturday night, it's, that process you've described is terribly addictive. Yeah, of course, absolutely. You have to, yeah, and you're, you're. It's all consuming as well. Too. Listen, there are managers. Thankfully, I think, and I'm kind of envious of them, who can actually, oh, still be really feel terrible about losing a football game on a Saturday, but by maybe about half past seven or eight o'clock or something, can can leave it to the side and think about it. I'll think about it again. Uh, I've never been able to do that. I must admit, you know, I, I think uh, much to my um, to my regret, really. Um, but it's 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 that it's it's all it's really is all consuming for me. I want to interpose. We've got people who are we call socios, which are like season ticket holders, members who've been with us for all our nearly eight years now, and they send in questions. Mm-hmm. So we have several. Robert Ryan is one. He's a, a diehard. Blue Nose Rangers fan and speaks right? extremely well of what he learned from watching you. Mm-hmm. Chris Brooks is another. Hello, Graham. There's a well-known quote from Brian Clough on dealing with a player who disagrees with him. We talk about it for 20 minutes and we decide I was right. Haha. <laughs> I'd like to know if Martin were ever challenged by one of his players on anything where he actually sat down, thought about it and realised that maybe the player was right after all did anyone in that situation change Martin's thinking on anything it's a really good point and um, when when you're in the dressing room and some player confronts you in the dressing room about a point particularly if you've been 
adamant in the last 30 seconds or the last minute beforehand that you think that you're right, I used to find that really difficult to, uh, to climb down from that, <laughs> really difficult. However, there are other times in the sanctuary of, uh, uh, of my room if a player come in and said, listen, you know, I think that uh, we could maybe look at this, I would be, uh, I might not necessarily agree with him then, but I could think about it. And if I did think that he was right, do you know what I sometimes did? I sometimes then went into a dressing room and told the players in the dressing room when he was there to say, you know, Tom was in my room there, made this point, actually, I think we're going to go with it. So suddenly now he gets he gets a lot of kudos for you know for being able to change the manager's mind. I don't know. I didn't want it to be happening too often. Otherwise, might as well hand the keys to the players. But um, overall, but yeah, yeah, I, I have done once or twice. You know, it's a good answer to Chris's good question, Martin. Here's the point temporarily where I'm not going to say I'm being tentative, but I'm being careful. Okay. Because it's a serious subject, but I'm, I'm curious and I want to know if you're willing. In On Days Like These, you speak about living in Derry mm-hmm. and the family moving to Belfast. You get signed by Nottingham Forest. Bloody Sunday happens back in Derry. Mm-hmm. You're in England. The family, for various reasons, which include you know your mum and dad and some siblings, the ones that aren't older and have gone on to their own lives, Phone you to say, we we in the book you say we we have to get out of Belfast. I think it's for a combine of reasons, and they moved to Nottingham. But it means that for a large part of your life, particularly your your footballing life, you're in the Midlands mm-hmm. at a time when there are the Birmingham bombings, mm-hmm. for example. Now I'm not that much younger than you, but I grew up with what I can only admit was not a fear of the troubles, but a degree of horrified fascination where the brutality of it and and the way in which it it ran to my mind out of control. And we look around today in society and we comment on this dreadful happening and this dreadful happening. And I think, although I didn't grow up in Northern Ireland, what went on there dwarfs by a thousand times what's going on now. And I still find it heartbreaking and horrifying to think about, as I did when... Brexit was being negotiated and people were utterly irrespectful of, of the gains that had been made. But to live in the Midlands in the 70s, mm-hmm. did it bring tests of people's attitudes and behaviour? I, I think it must have done. Uh, and what was that experience like? How did you handle it? How has it changed you? If you're a footballer, it should give you a, a sort of a status that seems to work for you. You know, Catholic or Protestant, it didn't really matter much, you know. Um, I'm talking about in England at this stage. That would have been different if it was in Northern Ireland, of course, but over there in England. However, you talked about the Birmingham pub bombings in 1974. You won't believe this. I was in that pub two nights before. One of the no. two that was bombed? Yeah, in the tavern in the town. Jethro Tull were playing in the Birmingham Audio on the Tuesday night. I have to say that from Nottingham to Birmingham in those days, in the 70s, you had had to come through Tamworth and Lichfield and all these particular places. No sat nav in your car. I've just had the car for the first time. So I'm going with my brother and a, and a Scottish lad with me, uh, Jim McCann, who's um, professional at Forest as well too. So we're going to watch Jethro Tull play. So I got lost along the way, lost. 
and uh, thinking we're not going to make this at all. So there must have been, I think it was at either Litchfield, I think it was. Remember, the, the motorway, motorways didn't exist, or the ones that, uh, that um, linked Nottingham and... Uh, it's dark. As you say, no GPS. When you're lost, Absolutely. you're kind of properly lost. Absolutely. So there was a girl waiting for um, uh, a bus. We asked what was the best way to go in, into Birmingham. She said, well, actually, I'm going in there at this minute. So she came with us, and she was meeting her friends in the tavern in the town which is about 200 yards from where uh, Jack did the gig is. And now suddenly, because she's in the car with him taking us there, we're going to be on time. We said, well, listen, well, thank you very much for that there. She's now early for her appointment with her friends coming in. And so we go, we go in for a drink. And you go in and you go downstairs into the area. Almost to the minute, 48 hours later, the bomb's taking place. If Jethro Tull had been on a Thursday... Um, we wouldn't wouldn't be here. How do you cope with that in a spiritual sense? Do you, do you talk to, say, Geraldine, in the, no, no, in the no, moment no. about it then? I felt that um, it was an awful event, obviously. Uh, the chances of me being in that, in, in that pub um, at any given time were like millions to one. Mm-hmm. And then suddenly you could easily have been in it. This is like 48 hours almost to the second for... Mm. Uh, beforehand uh, you're going down into a sort of a cavern area as well the people who lost their lives really didn't have a chance of course it was a dreadful event but it's um, and all the people all the families who suffered from that there so it, it, listen it did it did, did take its toll and and life in Nottingham and life with opposing fans didn't become intolerable but you for a while when that campaign was on in the mainland was it noticeable do you know what you just you had to get on with it. The following day, I remember that there, the players in the dressing room were were questioning me as well, to you know, from you know, from the background that I was in, almost as if to say that I had some sort of leanings towards that. I can't say I can't say the Nottingham Forest fans were um, were up in arms against you. You know, you've, you felt as if well, I was love. I would for, say. Well, I was I, kind of one of the favourite players, for, yeah. believe it or not. And I think it, I, I think it has much to do with my. Arguments with with Brian Clough. Now Brian Clough was. Don't, don't get me wrong. Brian Clough was the god, absolute god there, and um, everybody thought that. But I think there maybe a, a bit of a bit of admiration for me. The fact is that I'm fighting all the time trying to get into his team. I I wonder a lot about what this famous British character, mm. and I felt that growing up in general in Britain when I was young, when I was I was out the age that I was at when you were playing um, at Forest and, and thrilling us all. And I felt that people said we are a friendly, tolerant society, but what we grew up seeing on the television was very racist. There was mm-hmm. an awful lot of racism. Mm-hmm. And from because I'm living afar now for 20 years, mm-hmm. I look back on the United Kingdom, although I'm Scottish, and I wonder about how we are, how we've changed, what our attitudes to people are, what our behaviour to people is. I do think that in terms of human values, I think we were probably in better shape back then. Mm. Although it was a, it was that what the things that were happening that might cause people to treat a man with your background, your accent, mm. just simply where you were born, mm. I don't mm. mean anything else, might, the temptation might have been to treat you differently. Mm-hmm. And I suppose what I was trying to find out was how did you feel? First of all, when I moved over to when I moved over to England, it was late 1971. Obviously, wanted to become a professional footballer in England as well too. 
the troubles in Northern Ireland were, were starting to escalate at the time. You know, they'd been started from late 69 and now by 19, late 71, that's two years, a lot of trouble. Uh, my family was living in Belfast at the time. We're in a relatively safe, safe part of Belfast, if you can call any part of Belfast safe. So I wanted to, I moved over. I didn't really, and I make this point in the book, I wanted a bit of freedom. A little yeah, bit of freedom. You make it very well. Absolutely. I wanted you my, had gutted when they yeah, were moving over. Absolutely. <laughs> I, wanted my, I wanted my parents to come over, but I didn't want them to come over as quickly as that. And But the troubles were escalating at the time. And this was, this was uh, I say, late 1971. Uh, Bloody Sunday wasn't until the uh, until end of January of 1972. So, and that wasn't the reason that they moved over because they were they were actually uh, they were actually in England at the t- at the time. So, I, I, I had this conflict in my mind where I really did not want them to be in any trouble. That's true, of course. And of course, there, my mother was always thinking about. Well, I have to go over to England to look after him because he'll not look after himself. He doesn't know how to. And not realising that this is exactly... I didn't know how to look after myself, but I enjoyed that part of not being able to look after myself. So then, I suppose, when... when If you're talking about how, how you were viewed, it's, I suppose it was always in the back of your mind that you, it's, it wasn't that long after, you know, the old... The, uh, where they used to have the boarding houses where you know no blacks, no dogs, no Irish, you know. But I, 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 I didn't feel that as a footballer until the troubles actually came to the mainland. That's the point. Yeah. When they hit the mainland, then the players, even the players were saying to me, uh, you know, uh, wh- wh- what's this all about? As if I had the answer for everything. And, and that's where the, the crossover became, um, uh, shall I say, blurred a little bit in the sense that now I was a footballer, I had a mm. status as a footballer, and no one cared whether I went to church or not, you know, whether I did or didn't. But then suddenly now I'm not, I'm I'm no longer just a footballer. I'm actually Irish footballer, um, and possibly have you know have some sort of uh, leanings towards um, towards nationalism and things like this here. So that was the that was the difficulty. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.